I? Who are we? What do I care about? What am I going to do about it? These are the essential components to every expeditionary designed by Christian Talbot and his base camp team, today's guests on the Curiosity Files. The podcast designed to build the capacity to ask meaningful questions in service to students and educators. I'm Shel Wabrek at Lovett, a K-12 school in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Derek Ryan from Tabor Academy, a 9 through 12 boarding and day school in Marion, Massachusetts. And I'm Kate Turnbull from Metairie Park Country Day, a pre-K-12 school in Metairie, Louisiana. We started this podcast when our faculty was separated because of the outbreak of coronavirus. The goal was to continue to feed an intellectually hungry faculty and to find unique ways to gather as a community around topics that supported our core values. Our conversations with big picture thinkers in the field of education and beyond strives to activate a transformative future for thinking and learning. This is file number 12. Christian Talbot is the founder and principal of Basecamp, an organization that exists to help schools deepen their mission through innovation. In their work, they strive to ask better questions instead of finding the right answer, to build together instead of working alone, and to embrace pluralism as a superpower that allows us to harmonize difference through shared values. This is all in service to the creation of an optimistic future. Before founding Basecamp, Christian was the head of school at Malvern Prep, a sixth to 12th grade independent school for boys. And if you were to read his blog, Ed Future, I Am an Addict, you would immediately realize that he was an English teacher for many years before that. In each of our podcasts, we give our guests a superhero name. Christian, I am dubbing you Captain Cascade. In 2017, Christian and I, along with two other co-conspirators, presented a workshop at NAAS called Design the Edge Effect. And I have been a devotee of his ever since. During the workshop, he shared a video called How Wolves Change Rivers, which has been an essential piece of my own journey and illustrates Christian's work in schools and with students. The video explores a scientific concept called the trophic cascade. Wolves were introduced at Yellowstone National Park after almost 70 years, and this drove the abundant deer out of open spaces, leading to a significant period of regeneration on the plains and valleys. Some trees quintupled in height in just six years. Songbirds returned, beavers returned who created further niches for other creatures. The vegetation growth and regenerating forest meant that erosion on the riverbanks decreased and gave life to more permanent pools. Christian is a trophic cascade. The impactful moments that he has in schools and on people have lasting and regenerating effects. One place this is manifested is in the expeditionaries that Basecamp runs for students. Essentially, these design sprints allow students to collaborate across space and time to tackle the world's most pressing problems. The shift to virtual learning has not stopped this group in their tracks, and reading their reflections about how this work has unfolded virtually has been an inspiration for me. Christian wrote a recent blog post highlighting something Clyde Cole, who is here with us today, noticed when popping into a Zoom as some students worked. He noted the silence that ensued when he popped in, highlighting the point, what if the secret to being a great educator is doing less, is saying less, not more? What if it means creating the conditions for students to do meaningful work and then getting out of their way? So Christian, Captain Cascade, we are so excited to meet your team. 
feel like this is like a, this is your life moment. That was such a, a gushing introduction. Thank you. Thank you for the very kind words and also for giving us an opportunity to share what we've learned in some ways, like you're doing us a favor because we also need to think through what the experience last week was like, and it, it'll be helpful for us to clarify our own thinking. But the team is really the, the, the key idea, as you will see when we, when we start talking together. So let me introduce Clyde first, because I've known Clyde for 25 years, and on and off, he and I have collaborated over those 25 years on different projects. Clyde is, uh, like me, a lifelong educator, educational leader. Uh, he's one of my mentors. He's occupied basically every conceivable role you can think of, from classroom teacher to dean to principal to deputy superintendent in New York City public school system for principal leadership and development. He's founded a couple of schools. And so it just is somebody who, who has seen every dimension of, of school leadership. Um, and just a great practitioner as well. Mary Ellis Garcia is also a lifelong uh, educator, mostly in Washington, D.C. She was in schools for a long time, also as a classroom teacher and as an administrator, and now works with a, a foundation to support families in schools. One of the things, you know, you gave me a, a, a superpower name or a superhero name. I, I, I refer to Mary Ellis as our culture queen because she is just absolutely masterful at thinking through what kind of culture we are creating for the kids, but also what kind of culture they're creating for themselves and you know, when and whether to intervene uh, or not. And then finally, Krista Casey is a former colleague of mine from Malvern Prep, played a number of different roles there, did some classroom teaching, was a counselor, helped with a lot of different innovation and design work, particularly in the middle school, but also, I don't know, I don't know if I should say most importantly, but for me anyway, most importantly was the person who brought seed, seed training to Malvern Prep, which for me is like hands down the best professional development I've received in diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice work. And she's new uh, as of this past week to Expeditionaries. She is a program director for Speak Up, which is an organization that partners with schools to help young people and their parents have really deep, rich, and important conversations about the things that matter to the kids as opposed to the things that preoccupy the parents. So that's a really quick snapshot of those three. Patrick Selp couldn't be here. He's the assistant head of school for academics at Malvern Prep. He was sort of my right-hand person on the academic side when I was the head of school there. Couldn't be here with us, but also uh, basically my co-founder with, with Expeditionaries. Thanks. We can't wait to hear about your week, how that went, and more about the work that you're doing with kids. Great. Expeditionaries is social entrepreneurship boot camp, basically. But let me start with why. So why do we do what we do with Expeditionaries? Our conviction is that school is important for lots of things, but one of the things it doesn't do particularly well, or it's not designed to do, is to help kids to identify problems that neither they nor their teachers nor their textbooks have thought about before, and then to come up with solutions that no one's thought about before. So School's really good at known problems with known solutions and really not designed to help kids explore unknown problems with unknown solutions. And we feel like they need a space for that. Beyond that, it really is about social entrepreneurship. So it's about contributing to the common good. And we actually define explicitly for the students that uh, social entrepreneurship for us is creative and collaborative problem solving for the common good. It's about a purpose that's bigger than you. 
It is, as I said, a social entrepreneurship boot camp. So typically we run them over four or five days intensively. So 8.30 to 3 or 9 to 3.30, you know, those are roughly the, the hours. And when we were in physical presence, um, we'd have them off-site. So we, didn't, we tend not to do these at schools. We might use uh, like a WeWork or, well, not that they're imploding. Now that they're imploding, we wouldn't use them anymore. But uh, we were hosted for a number of expeditions at Fordham University's uh, Social Innovation Collaboratory. So just like to find interesting spaces that are unfamiliar to them to kind of get them into a different zone of thinking. Finally, how do we, how do we help them to go on that journey from start to finish? The gist of it, as you'll see in a moment, is uh, we teach them the basics of design thinking and lean startup methods. They identify a problem, they prototype a solution, and then they present that solution for feedback at the end of the experience to a CEO panel. I just want to tell you a quick story about this team from last week. They called their team and their product Black Vision. So most of these kids are from the Bronx in New York, and the other one is from Mount Vernon just outside the Bronx. They were really concerned about this issue of over-policing, and in particular, you know, why is there over-policing in certain communities? And as they began to dig into that question, really began to explore the, the reality that um, obviously, you know, certain communities get stereotyped and those narratives have really deep roots. So they began to wonder, what if we could change that narrative? What if there was a way that we could empower particularly black and brown youth to support black and brown youth businesses and to bring in particularly law enforcement, but really just the wider community into a different story, a different narrative about you know, who these kids are as they grow up in the South Bronx. Uh, and so Black Vision is an app that is designed to identify just sort of like in Google Maps fashion with pins, where are the small businesses owned by young Black and, and Latino and other young people throughout the South Bronx. How can you, you know, use your dollar, vote with your dollars to support those businesses, but also kind of rejuvenate not only the local economy, but also the, the local narrative. So, you know, many of you may know the South Bronx historically has a reputation for being a pretty difficult place. These kids all wanted to change that narrative. And so Black Vision became their opportunity to, uh, or what they envision as an opportunity to, to change the story. That's an example of what kids might come up with by the end of the expedition and then present that for feedback to an executive panel. On day one, we introduce them to design thinking and they go through empathy work and ideation once they've framed a problem a certain way. And then they pick one of those ideas and they prototype it. And then from that point forward or starting around day three is this kind of build, test, learn cycle from Lean Startup and uh, they try to get through as many build, test, learn cycles as they can before the slightly more than midpoint on day five, which is when they pitch their, their prototype to an, a panel of executives who give them feedback. And the, the, the panel is really the opposite of Shark Tank. If you know, Shark Tank is kind of a zero-sum competition, many losers and one winner, we approach the, the CEO panel as a positive-sum game where everybody wins because the feedback that one team gets could potentially benefit all the teams, but the goal for everybody is how do we provide feedback in a setting where we're encouraging kids to either pivot or persevere with these problems and solutions that matter 
to them. And the whole experience from start to finish is really organized around four big questions. Who am I as an individual? Who are we as a team and as a community? What matters to us? And then what are we going to do about that? We had done a lot of expeditions in physical presence. And then uh, at some point this spring, the five of us decided, hey, let's try to do this 100% virtual. But we knew that we couldn't just take what we had been doing and dump it into an online format. So the original experience was organized with the hero's journey in mind. So you can see day one of expedition, day two, and then underneath them are the, some of the beats or the steps in, that, in the traditional hero's journey. So what we tried to do was take the same general concept of a hero's journey, but then map different experiences with the emotions and the feelings that we wanted the kids to have as they were going through each of these parts of the agenda. Mm. So large fires is that's just our way to refer to full group gatherings, but keeping in mind the kind of the power of like, you know, being all gathered around the big, large campfire where you're setting kind of the terms of the conversation, you're creating the community culture. It's also practical for sharing, you know, important information. So there is that, that practical dimension too. Whereas small games are, are smaller groups, sometimes even as small as just one individual in front of that, that fire, uh, reflecting or playing games or, or doing kind of small group conversation. But as you can see with those pink post-it notes, we tried to be thoughtful about what emotion we imagined the kids coming into that moment feeling, and then what emotion we wanted them to feel leaving that experience. So it's kind of a from to framework. So now I want to stop talking and invite my, my teammates to share. We thought it would be useful just to share what's for each of us, what's our one big lesson that we learned from last week, because it was the first time that we did this in a virtual format. And as I said earlier, you know, we're still processing this and are grateful to you for giving us the form in which to process it. So I'll start with, with Mary Elston. Thank you all for um, just echoing Christian's sentiment of just thanking you for letting us be here. And I would say the lesson that really endured from last week is one, that students want to engage. I, as a former high school teacher, there are moments where you're like, do they care about what this lesson's about, this project? Do they care about each other? Like those questions often impact educators in particular ways. Um, and one of the things that became abundantly clear on day one is that each student wanted to engage it may not have looked the same in their brain of how they wanted to do that, but they each had something to share and they wanted community. And it was a matter of us creating the conditions and the space for that to happen. I think specifically about one student, she on day one, very boldly shared, I don't do talking in whole group as she's talking in a whole group. Besides that, I think what I saw from her, which was a key example is that if you create a space for me to share it in a whole group, and I feel that I can deeply engage with others about something that I care about, then we can have meaningful community. And in particular, that student within 30 minutes of us starting the expedition and seeing some of the ideation that had happened, she private messaged me and said, I don't think everyone is comfortable talking about racism. And in that moment, I could have just engaged with her privately, but what I realized is that was an opportunity for me to bring that back to the facilitators and say, how can we create 
spaces and safety and, and bold spaces for students to feel not only willing, but comfortable engaging. Um, and one of the things that I heard our students really say continuously throughout the experience is that each of you as adults value what we say. And so indirectly, because they felt valued in what they were bringing, they continued to bring that um, to the holistic community. So I think that really stood out to me from last week. Next up, whoops, is Clyde. Uh, hello, everybody. What I noticed the most was the teamwork aspect of things. And the reason it, it, it stood out to me, even though it was part of the in-person experience, the reason it stood out to me so much was because I had trouble perceiving any teamwork happening because of the virtual environment. I was like all in my own head about like, what's my role in this? Like, should I be involved? How should I be checking? What kinds of conversations should I be having? What should I be hearing? It was very strange to me, especially somebody who's been doing this, whatever this is for such a long time. And so the fact that they would come back with these uh, uh, great comments and great insights as Mary Ellis just described, and they would come back with, with work that was clearly produced in a group and in a team where everybody had a role and everybody felt like their perspective was valued and, and part of the final product. The fact that they talked so much at the end and the reflection of enjoying meeting, meeting other kids, the fact that everything was done for community and in the community way, not necessarily sort of sweeping in and doing this for a bunch of people, but trying to get the community involved in almost every project that we saw last week. There's so much team orientation to what was happening and my inability to pick it up right away made me question whether or not it was happening. But then, you know, so many indicators along the way and, you know, definitely what, what we saw at the end in the presentations to the panel and in the final reflections from the students, for sure. And uh, finally, you know, just the power of the team of the facilitators led by Christian, uh, having somebody to check my sanity against and with. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having us. Being new to the team, I think there's just so many things that I learned, but definitely that team time, also from a student team time point of view, as well as facilitator team time, was so invaluable um, in building community and making sure that collaboration happened over just five days. It was five days virtually, which really is a short time. And so the intentionality and flexibility, I think, were the two things that really allowed for this to happen. In Zoom, you're either there in those breakout groups or you're not. And we don't have those same physical cues where in the classroom you often see groups of students working together. And you know by seeing how productive they may be or if they have different dynamics that are forming. But we didn't have any of that. And so we quickly adjusted when we huddled before first thing in the morning, all throughout different break times, as well as after the day. And during those huddle times, we were able to really think about what we had planned, but able to adjust. And I think that was really key. You know, I think oftentimes we did do a lot of planning ahead of time, but instead of getting stuck, we very much talked through what we saw, what we felt um, would be best for the students. We took a team-centered approach, recognizing different teams need different types of support, different levels of support. And it's about communicating that with students and giving them options and helping them tell us too what they need so that it really is something that they can overcome. Structurally designing this experience with those facilitator huddle times was really significant 
and being able to be flexible about it um, and recognize that we all have blind spots and which is why we need each other was really critical and is what one of the reasons that this was all really successful. And finally, um, Patrick couldn't be here, but he wanted me to share some thoughts about what he refers to as front loading. So right from the very start, one of the things that we knew, um, and I think Patrick knew with a, a greater degree of conviction than the rest of us, given his experiences at Malvern in the spring and pivoting really hard and fast to a fully online environment was just how important it is to have some physical touchstones. He noticed that that was a, a significant gap in the student experience. Um, and he was hearing that from other people at other schools. So right from the start, we decided that um, we were going to send every participant a care package a few days in advance of the expedition. And it was designed to do a couple of things. I mean, at the most basic level, it was meant to engender some degree of anticipation in them. You know, just sort of like surprise shows up in the mail, this box for me, it has the expeditionary sticker on it, you know, so just to kind of get them wondering, like, I wonder what's inside here and what's this about? There are various objects in that box and they included some things that were common to everybody and then some things that were personal to them. So Patrick calls this front loading, like front loading the experience with the care package and, you know, letting kids know we've really thought about this and we've thought about you. This takes a lot of time and it was absolutely worth it to front load our planning time with that and then to get them to engage with the different objects that were in that box because we knew we couldn't have them on Zoom from nine in the morning till three in the afternoon straight. Like there had to be times where not only they, they should be offline, but we wanted them to go offline. And so just to give you like a simple example, every morning included a, a 30 minute, we called it a wellness block. They could do a workout of the day and, and Patrick is a, is a CrossFit guy. So he would record a, a quick video of a different kind of four minute, five minute, 10 minute workout you could do just a quick thing. Or there was a link to, to a, a yoga thing that you could do, or there was a choose your own adventure thing. But we put these into little envelopes inside the care package. And so every, every morning there was an envelope for that day's theme. And then every evening there was a separate envelope that told you what the following day's theme was. These were just on little pieces of paper, the anticipation of like, oh, I wonder what tomorrow's about. I wonder what the workout of the day is going to be tomorrow. Or I wonder what the yoga session is going to be tomorrow. So just like little things like that that took a lot of planning up front, but that paid dividends when we actually went live starting Monday morning. And Patrick has this saying, I'll give you the polite version of it, which is um, if you plant corn, you'll get corn. And if you plant crap, you're going to get weeds. And so front loading is really about deciding we're going to plant corn and it's going to take some time to plant it and to, to get it to grow. But all that front loading will be worth the effort that we put in. Wow. Christian, I mean, so many great takeaways. One of the things that you talked about in the setup was that there were four questions that kids were framing their work around. Will you talk a little bit more about those questions and how they framed that work? Yeah, these are really the, the guiding questions for the whole experience. I don't know how else to say it, except that we just believe very strongly that kids should be exploring who they are as individuals, who they are as members of a community, and what matters to them and what they're going to do about it. So the four questions are, who am I? Who are we? Which of course is 
you know, it's kind of broadly phrased because you can construe that we in different ways and different kinds of concentric circles. The we could be as small as, you know, two people on a team connecting with each other. It could be slightly larger in the form of that fuller team of three to five kids. Could be we as in the everybody who's doing this particular expedition, so on and so forth. So who am I? Who are we? What matters to us? What's a social dilemma, a social impact challenge that we actually care about, as opposed to this is the problem set in the book, or this is the chapter in the book. And it's just time to do the French Revolution. It's time to do velocity equations. We really want the kids picking the problems that matter to them and then figuring out what are they going to do about it. So there are times where we have themed expeditions and you know we come in saying here's the like the big category like civil rights martin luther king junior day weekend we we run an expedition over that long weekend and you know within that category of civil rights you could get kids talking about you know the african american experience specifically or about the people of color experience broadly or it could be about lgbtq issue i mean it could be about anything what matters is that the kids actually care about it. Frankly, this is not typically what school is like for them. They don't usually get to explore very deeply those four questions together at the same time, and often any one of them, you know, in a sustained way. Thank you. Thank you. Clyde, one of the things you talked about was you said just straight up, what's my role in this, in, in this virtual world, and really grappling with what, what that looks like. Will you, will you talk about that? where you started, where you landed as you came out of that expeditionary? Sure. In, in the in-person experience, uh, no matter how big the space, you always have some proximity to the kids when they are doing whatever it is that they're doing at the time. So you can be there, but not necessarily be in the way. You can, you know, listen in and they know you're there. All the, all the little, you know, proximity tricks that you use as teachers, uh, you know, sort of come into play. I would decide you know, when was it good for me to jump in and actually like sit down with them and ask them questions or check in. Um, sometimes Christian would have to nudge me, vice versa. Hey, you got, uh, now let's switch. Like a lot of that kind of stuff would happen. And uh, it's very difficult to do that this time. So we'd be here together like this as we are now while the kids are in their breakout rooms. You know, we're talking about something. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, I have no idea what these kids are doing. And it's driving me crazy. And so um, I was like, I have to go check in on somebody. So I'd go check in. They wouldn't talk. I'd come back. I'd weep about them not talking while I was there. And so uh, just sort of going back and forth with trying to figure out how to be helpful and when really to be helpful. And so uh, if I think about you know being a good member of the community and doing all the things that we're asking them to do and being prepared to do that and, and being prepared to help them to do that, taking things seriously and showing up and having my camera on. I think all of those kinds of things, particularly in a virtual space, are, if not um, as important, possibly even more important, because um, this being new for all of us, there's lots of modeling that needs to happen. One thing they appreciated in addition to that, how much it seemed to them that we valued their voice. You know, if you're the one talking, you don't really hear their voice. We set up around that and the fact that we were able to things back to them and, and help them make connections and uh, say, hey, you know what, I, I know of somebody who's doing something like that already that just shows that you heard them. I think one thing that was a bit shocking for them, the morning before the CEO panel, 
the kind of feedback we would give. It was more heavy-handed than the kind of engagement we had with them the previous four days. This idea of what's the emotion that kids carry with them coming in? What's the emotion we want them to have going out? Christian, how, how did you land there? I mean, that's a really interesting framework. Just to be like really honest, that was how we planned it. I have no idea whether that's actually how they experienced it. You know, I think we need to be more rigorous about how we litmus test these things, but at least conceptually, the hero's journey is like, it's about narrative, right? It's a story. And one of the things that we do, we have this thing called a journey map. The gist of the journey map is that you start on the right-hand side, excuse me, the left-hand side of the map, just like any hero's journey, you have to kind of travel through and pass through these different obstacles and enemies and you know you get to the final stage and one of the things we do is we have kids create we call them game pieces we did all this in mural by the way as well normally this is literally like a i don't know four foot by nine foot map that hangs on the wall but they created these little icons in mural and they start up here in the upper left hand corner and twice a day we pause for a large group reflection and we have different prompts as the experience goes on. And each time they reflect out to the group uh, in response to the prompt, when they're done talking, they then move their game piece from wherever it is to the other side of these obstacles. So you know, you're on your way, you face a pack of wolves, you gotta go through the dark forest, you gotta cross the mountains. And, and then you end up with you know, the CEO panel is in that upper right-hand corner where the Sphinx is, right? You've got to confront that sort of, we call it the boss level, the boss level uh, challenge. We're very intentional about treating it like a story, like they're on a journey and we, we kind of play that up a lot. But when you are building something around a narrative, like, like any movie script, it, like th this is just a, a, uh, an axiom of screenwriting is every scene should, should have a turn, an emotional turn in it. If it starts here, it should end up over here. It starts here, it should end up here or vice versa, right? So we were already working with a kind of a narrative mental model to begin with. And that from to kind of dynamic is part of screenwriting. And so that was the idea. The idea was just like any good movie, 30 second or one minute or five minute scene is gonna bring the viewer on a micro journey and a micro emotional journey then a great learning experience maybe does something similar. But that said, I really don't know whether the kids would say that, I mean, first of all, would they even say that those were the emotions that they were feeling coming in and then leaving and, and you know, when were we successful or not? But at least that's what we, we were thinking of. One of the questions that one of our faculty members is asking about the role of technology in community building. I know it's something that we're all grappling with as independent school people because community is so much a piece of our value proposition and finding ways to build, sustain, and really feed those relationships virtually has, has been hard. So I'm wondering what insights you had there doing this virtually for the first time. To your question around building community, I'm curious, Chris, if you want to take a first stab at that. Or I, I think thinking about our week, um, as an example too, I think what really helped build community in that short period of time is, is going back to that journey map, those different connection points. So we always started together and actually right after day one, 
um, as facilitators, we talked about this idea of home-based, uh, kind of having these home groups for more of a connection in smaller group settings. Because, you know, initially, these are students come from different states, too. So there's a little bit of that ice. How do we further break that? So that was an adjustment we made. So meet as a large group, go into smaller groups, come back together as a large group again and reflect on the day. By doing some of those things on a daily basis, so that routine, again, of knowing, like, yeah, I'm going to go do my work in different smaller groups, but I have this larger community where we're all on this journey and reflecting. I think that really did help build some of that community. I think another thing we did was we looked into a lot of different ways you can uh, play some games on Zoom. Themes were a great way to just have people come and introduce a little bit of their story again. The more we hear stories, the more we feel connected to people. So by the end of the week, students saying, you know, I really feel like I really got to know all of you and now really don't want to leave you all. Um, just that short period of time by sharing our own stories, we were able to build those connections. So I think, yes, we do lose some of that physical connections, but I think virtual hasn't been so much of a barrier in, in actually creating a sense of community and sharing and connecting to the stories. Also to sort of broadly uh, just talk about the, the, the issue of community, I think in a virtual space, the way it's set up for them to actually spend a, quite a bit of time working on something that cares to all of that, that that matters to all of them is probably the biggest driver and probably is the thing that would not be negatively impacted just because it's virtual if there is a lesson for school people that could possibly be it one other thing i would add to what clyde just said I mean, you might be thinking 11 kids, five facilitators, that's like crazy over-resourced, right? And it's true, as, as it evolves, we, we wouldn't have that kind of a ratio, but because it was an experiment, we wanted to be over-resourced. But as a mental model, like we are coaches. And so you know, like if we're the basketball coaches, we can teach the kids how to play basketball, but we can't get out on the court and play the game for them, right? If the game is the CEO panel, we can prepare them for scrimmages, right? They do their practice rounds with us. Um, but we can't do the pitch for them. So they have to do all of the stuff themselves. And if we're coaches, my role was head coach, but your assistant coaches, often you have a more intimate and personal relationship with an assistant coach than you do with the head coach, right? That's the person who pulls you aside. It's like the client saying, oh, like, hey, did you notice this thing going on? Even while the head coach is still talking or, you know, you know doing whatever. So I think the, like if, if you shift your mental model and, it, and if you can rethink how you're, you're using people in terms of like how many, how many teachers are in the virtual space at any one given time, it's interesting. It's really interesting to think about how you can shift from you know, direct instruction to this kind of like assistant, head coach, assistant coach model where um, you know, without any kind of ego being attached to head versus assistant, just like, what kind of a role are you playing in facilitating that kid's learning, knowing that that kid has to get on the court and play the game. You can't get on the court and play the game for that kid. And by the way, the game is public, Like right? It's not going to be the test that you made up that no one's ever going to look at except for you when you grade it. It's that there are executives who these kids have never met before. The Zoom session in which they pitch their thing is going to have people who are invited from the outside. I mean, Shell, you know, I, I put it on LinkedIn and invited anybody on LinkedIn who wanted to sign up could sign up to come watch those those pitches, right? And it gets recorded. That's the kind of pressure that playing a game in front of an audience provides. And I think there's there's something useful about that. As we transition back to what we hope will be a physical school classroom, what might be some aspects of Expeditionary's 
that you might want us as classroom teachers to take back with us? The thing that immediately comes to mind that I've been thinking about is what they're most passionate about. What is it that they want to do to challenge the status quo? Um, I think that really resonated with me because I think whatever I do, I oftentimes when I have been in classrooms too, I always had the idea of this is what I'll do. This is what I want the outcome to be. But I think until students are the ones telling us what is also on their minds, I think that engagement piece is a completely different territory. Like when they're actually really interested and passionate about something, the level of engagement as well as how much they transform as an individual and figuring out who they are and what their place is in this world is definitely very different. It would definitely to hear a little bit more from the students and have them be the ones sharing what they would like to learn. And I think that's what social entrepreneurship and expeditionary does through our process of divergent convergent thinking is gathering all those different ideas that they're really passionate about in order to narrow down into one of the one out of the many, of course, important ones that they can really make an impact on socially and, and in the world. That's a really interesting answer because I'm thinking about a social entrepreneurship class, which is probably going to be some sort of an elective in, in many at many schools. I wonder about that question at the start of your sophomore English class or your algebra two class or your physics class. What before we tell you what the syllabus and the course goals are, what is it you want to get out of this? I, what an interesting question to ask at the start of a course in that way. To connect to what Derek was going to say, thank you, Derek, um, <laughs> for, the, for the perfect setup. I appreciate that. Imagine if a kid came to a math teacher or a science teacher or an English teacher saying, uh, I'm passionate about X, or I'm passionate about solving X, and this is what I want to do about it, but I need to know blank. <laughs> like, I need to know this part of calculus. You know, I need to know know this particular piece of biology and so on and so forth if you can give kids the power to understand deeply who they are be empathetic with respect to other people and figure out their place in the world uh the issues that they want to solve and what they want to do about them that will drive them wanting to know particular things that your school is probably well equipped to to give them in a certain way, right? No. Why is the ice cream truck going past your house? It is. Because I definitely, I'm hearing the music it and thinking, and it's raining. what are we getting? Yeah, more on that later. But yeah, that is the ice cream truck outside my house, live from Brooklyn, New York. You know, when you think about a semester long course or a year long course, or if you can think of how to figure out uh, how to make this uh, a school experience for, you know, three years in a middle school or four years in a high school or something like that. If you could figure out how to have their passions themselves, others, the world, their concerns, be the driver for all the things that you have sitting up on those shelves and then wanting to go get it and go learn it. I think that's, that's a very different kind of experience. I don't know that you, I don't know how much time you invest in sort of making it that way. Base camp sort of relies on, okay, these kids know a certain amount of things. They're in high school and they know a certain amount of things. And, and so there's, there's a lot of proxies for those things. And so we, we, we sort of start them on a certain, but if that was integrated into their school experience, I think it could be very, very different. There's a research component that we don't talk a lot about within the, the base camp expeditionaries experience that if blown out could be that going to the math department or going to the science department or going to the languages department. 
something or something like that, or even or even going to the to the head of school. How come we don't? There's no that we don't have this anywhere. We don't have this anywhere. Why don't we have this anywhere in our school? This is unacceptable. My answer is, um, I guess I need to start with with what makes me uncomfortable. So, like I, I love work. I love getting things done. I'm the kind of person who wants to see how much we can accomplish. So when we put together the agenda, I was very uncomfortable with how much time I knew we would have to give up. That typically was learning time. Just in a virtual format, we knew we couldn't ask kids to sit in front of a screen learning in the same way that they had been doing it in physical presence. And that made me really uncomfortable. But what I, what I learned from the experience, and this is a, I think it's a phrase from the Navy SEALs, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. So by slowing down, by front loading the experience and getting to know the kids and inviting them to get to know one another and to get to know themselves, we developed a, a kind of smoothness. This is that front loading that Patrick referred to. And then at a certain point, the smoothness turned into speed. And I have this experience every single time we do an expedition where, you know, day two, day three, depending on how long it is, I'm like, oh no, this is, this is going to be really bad. Like there's no way the kids are going to be able to do this. They're going to get up in front of the CEO panel who often are like people who I have very close personal relationships with, who I've asked to, you know, in public spend time. And it's going to, I'm going to humiliate myself. These kids are going to embarrass themselves and I'm going to have set them up for failure. I always have, I literally every single time I have that feeling, which is, you know, partly by design. I want it to be a real thing for everybody, not just for them, but for us as adults too. So for me, the lesson is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Like, yeah, we, as teachers, we got like, we want to cover stuff, right? We, I got stuff I got to cover. I got to get them to this point by a certain time in, in the school year, but we might just find that front loading the experience with who am I, who are we, what matters to us, what problem, uh, what, uh, what are we gonna do about it? Those are conversations worth going through slowly because it'll develop a smooth, smoothness that leads to a faster learning on the back end. It's a great metric of, of questions to ask ourselves. We, we are actually one minute over time, Christian, and I have one more question that I is probably longer than it takes for you to answer. I have time. One thing I've heard you talk about a little bit is the space between mission and vision and then the space between vision and culture and what what lurks in those in-between spaces. And I, I've heard you sort of refer to an or, that order of operations. How do we get from our school's mission to the kind of innovation that as educators we're, we're craving? Will you talk a little bit about that order of operations and what you mean by that? Yeah, so just to, de to define the terms, mission is your timeless reason for existence. I mean, we, you know, schools sometimes play around with mission statement wording, but they usually don't change the underlying core mission. And, and if they do, it happens very rarely, once every few decades, maybe. So mission is like that timeless reason why you exist. You know, frankly, most schools have largely very similar missions. Um, there are some that are more distinctive than others, but you know, we're in the business of forming young people and forming them at the most impressionable moment or period of their lives, you know, which raises the stakes. And we all tend to talk about doing that on behalf of the common good, whether it's about 
my background is largely in Catholic education. So, you know, forming leaders who are shaped by Catholic values or if it's, you know, a non-sectarian context or a public school context, you know, citizens, change makers, whatever. And th that really doesn't shift or alter all that often, all that much. So if mission is timeless, vision is timely. So your mission might be the same today as it was 20, 30 years ago. But my God, if you're doing the same thing, if your picture of success for a kid today is the same as it was 20 or 30 years ago, I mean, you shouldn't be in business in the first place. And secondly, it's hard to imagine how you're still in business. Vision is really like at this moment in time, what does the world demand of us? If, if this is what we say is our reason for existence and our license for existence, what does success look like? A really concrete thing you can point to is your portrait of a graduate. The, your vision's bigger than your portrait of your graduate, but your portrait of a graduate, portrait of a faculty member or staff member, those are ways of, of putting language to what you think success looks like given this moment. So this moment can be, you know, we live broadly speaking in an age of accelerating change. This moment could also be like, you know what? We have the convergence of three crises going on right now, COVID-19, an economic implosion, and then the explosion of racial injustice and civil unrest that are hundreds of years in the making. I hope lots of schools are, are saying to themselves, these are not flashes in the pan. You know, these are parts of tectonic shifts in our world. And there's no going back to what was, there's only going forward to what will be. What, what, what does our vision need to look like now based on our deep mission, which is not changing? How do we update our vision? What does success look like? Where are we going and why are we going there? And then culture is like your GPS, right? If your vision is captured by a North Star, like a point out there that you know you're going in that direction, well, you know it's, not, it's never a straight line from where you are to where that North Star is. So how are you gonna guide yourself and culture, which is, Shell, I know you, you, like me, are a fan of Seth Godin. He, the way he characterizes it is like, people like us do things like this. Or around here, here's how we do things because we have these deeply held values. So I'll just give you an example. You know, one of the core cultural practices of expeditions is pluralism. You named it at the beginning, Derek, I saw put it into the chat section. So it's a value in the abstract, but it's also a cultural, it's a, it's a, it should be translated into behavior. So what does that mean? It means that um, I am always looking to assemble a pluralistic community, which is certainly diverse and certainly inclusive, but it has to go beyond inclusion. Like inclusion to me feels like, well, I own the table and I'll invite you to have a seat at my table. Whereas when it's a pluralistic community, like even though Basecamp is my organization, like my in quotation marks, I don't feel like I own expeditionaries. I feel like we, the five members of this team, and then there are other times where there are other facilitators who come in, we own this thing. And a pluralistic you know, culture means that Carissa, Clyde, Mary Ellis, Patrick, their voices matter as much, sometimes more than mine does, even though technically this belongs to me, right? Like that's true on paper, but that's not the kind of culture that I want us to, to practice. Um, it means that at least 50% of the facilitators must be people of color, at least 50%. It 
It means at least 50% of the students must be students of color. It means at least 50% of the CEO panel must be people of color. And I know that race ethnicity is only one dimension when it comes to thinking about diversity, but you know, I've been preoccupied with this question for years and I feel like it's the first among equals. Yes, there are lots of other things that we need to be mindful of when it comes to diversity and inclusion. But the thing I'm most preoccupied with is helping to model what a pluralistic, racially, ethnically diverse and equitable community looks like and feels like. If that's your culture, that means you're gonna to get to your vision differently than somebody down the road who's got a different kind of culture. I could go on and on about this, but that's the end of my immediate answer anyway. Beautifully stated and extremely helpful for us, especially that vision piece of at, at this moment, what, what does the world need from us? What do our students need from us? I'm so thankful to have some time with you. Thank you for lending us your incredibly creative minds. Thank you for, for inviting us. Great. Thank you all so much. Yeah, thank, thank you, you. Team Basecamp.